Friends, have you ever struggled with growing in trusting someone? Perhaps you've been in situations where someone has given you reasons uh, not to be able to trust them anymore. Perhaps a person, perhaps a situation, uh, perhaps uh, at work. How do you grow in regaining trust, if you will? How do you grow in, in trusting someone? Well, friends, oftentimes in our own lives, when we fail to trust in, in others and in, 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 in trust others in, in, a, in a good kind of way of trusting, not in an idolatrous way, uh, when, when, when we lack the ability to trust, it often produces damage relationally in all kinds of ways. Now, this morning, I want us to look at the fact that God is calling his people to trust him, to grow in trust. They have not done so, not because God failed them, not because somehow God did something to, to give them reasons not to trust him is because they have chosen to trust someone else other than God. So in the book of Isaiah, where we are working through right now, God is like in this last, the very last call that God gives to his people. And even in this last call, when, when it's both a good news and a bad news, God desires for his people to grow in, in trusting him, trusting the Lord. This morning, we will look at the second uh, part of a sermon that I preached three weeks ago. The last two weeks, we had guest preachers. I'm thankful for the, to the Lord for those who came to preach God's word to us. But we are continuing a story that started in Isaiah 7, but today we're looking at Isaiah 8 and, and part of 9. I encourage you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8. As we look at the second half, the second part of, of, of a longer message in this, in this part of Isaiah, trust or fall. For those of you who did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to grab a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find uh, this passage on page number 572. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you that as a congregation, we're working our way through the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter by chapter. We are in Isaiah 8 this morning. Here is the word of the Lord for us. I will be reading from verse 1 all the way through chapter 9, verse 7. Here's the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of uh, Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the water of Shiloh, that flow gently, and rejoice over Razin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, 
the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you people, and be shattered. Give ear, all of you, far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will, not come. It will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? to the teaching, and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God and turn their face upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time when he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot on the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, 
a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, Forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking the Lord to speak to our hearts this morning? Our Father, we recognize that you are the one who revealed yourself to us. And we recognize this is your word to our hearts. Father, we confess more often than we are willing to, to acknowledge, we fail to trust in you. We fail to take you at your word. Father, forgive us. And we ask now by your Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of your word, would you increase in us our ability to trust you. And if there's any among us this morning who have never trusted in you, would you give them that ability this morning? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Trust or fall. This is how the chapters 7, 8, and half of 9 could be summarized as we um, have looked at already a few weeks ago in chapter 7. But just to remind us of where we've been, in chapter 6, God calls Isaiah, the prophet, and gives him a commission that's hard to take. A commission to speak on behalf of God with a warning that the people of God will reject it. And because they will reject it, Isaiah is called actually to, to continue to harden uh, the people uh, of his day because they have already turned their backs against the Lord. In chapter 7, we see the first action that Isaiah actually does. Uh, he speaks, he's sent by the Lord to King Ahaz to speak to him, to trust in what the Lord says he will do to deliver them from their enemies. Now, who would not want to hear that kind of a message? The Lord will deliver you from your enemies. Don't worry about the threat that the two northern kingdoms um, are, are posing against you. They will not come against you. The Lord will make sure that they don't come against you. And Ahaz does not want to trust the Lord. Ahaz wants to trust in his own strategic abilities, and he reached out to the king of Assyria to come against the northern tribes and against the little nation of Syria. Don't confuse Assyria with Syria. Syria, the little nation, and the northern tribes of Israel made a covenant, a conspiracy against Judah. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, heard about it, and his heart trembled. Instead of trusting the Lord, the Lord said, they will not come against you. Instead of trusting the Lord, Ahaz chose to reach out to Assyria to come and take care of this little threat. The Lord said to Ahaz, ask for a sign to assure you that you can trust me. How, how, can, I, how can I get you? To trust me. 
says the Lord to Ahaz. and says, ask for a sign. And Ahaz says, oh, no, I don't want to ask for the Lord for a sign. And the Lord is fed up with Ahaz's choosing not to trust in the Lord. So the Lord tells Ahaz, well, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Even though you don't ask for one, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the, knows how, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. That's chapter 7. In chapter 8, God now gives Isaiah the same message, but now to make it public to everyone. In chapter 7, that message was, was a private conversation between Ahaz and Isaiah. Now God says to, Ahaz, to Isaiah, make this message known to everyone. So in chapter, in chapter uh, 8, we see how Isaiah takes this message of calling his people to trust in the Lord. We'll see in this call that Isaiah gives to his nation, we'll see uh, three parts, three movements. And uh, the, the first and the third movement are the same. The first, why trust the Lord? In the middle, the second movement is how to respond in trust in the Lord. Third, why to trust in the Lord again. So we'll see that the why trust in the Lord is like a, like a parenthesis is like the beginning and the end of this message and then in the middle we see how to respond in trust in the Lord this morning this is what I we hope to accomplish and we pray that I pray the Lord would speak to our hearts why trust the Lord the first why we're gonna again we're gonna see again another why at the end but the first set of why trust the Lord three reasons why Isaiah tells us God tells us why we can trust him because the Lord knows the first sub-point of the first major point, why trust the Lord? One, because the Lord knows. Friends, how often when we struggle to trust God, at the heart of that struggle is the doubt if he truly knows what we're going through. One of the reasons why we have a hard time trusting in the Lord rather than trusting in us or in our schemes is we think we know better. I mean, we know theoretically that God knows everything. We know that he's in control of everything. But that's just in our minds. But our hearts, we feel like the way we know ourselves, the way we know our situation, is somehow better than the way God knows the situation. As we see in Isaiah 8, the first thing that God does, God not only reveals to his people the present, what they're going through, But God is going to reveal to them their immediate future. That their enemies, which they are fearing, the northern tribes of Israel and and the little country of Syria, those two enemies will be destroyed in the very near future. In verse 1 of chapter 8, God commands Isaiah to address not simply Ahaz, but the entire people by making a public testimony of what is to happen. Look at verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now this expression was actually a name made of four words. The Hebrew meaning of these four words would be literally speed, spoil, haste, and booty. 
Now, what do these words mean? Uh, this string of strange words were aimed at raising the interest of God's people to inquire, well, that's strange. I wonder what that means. Well, the meaning of these four words become clear when we see in the next few verses that this long phrase of four words was to become the name given to one of Isaiah's sons. And in verse 4, we are told what the name of Isaiah's son would actually signify. Why is he given that name? We look at verse 4. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. In other words, the name of this boy was a message from God of how quickly the northern nations, the northern kingdom and, and the nation of Syria will be wiped away. Now, before, was, before the, the boy was even conceived, God commanded Isaiah to write his name on a large tablet for everyone to know that God had predicted these matters before they happened. Notice in verse 2 that Isaiah was to get reliable witnesses who could testify that Isaiah had written this name ahead of time at God's direction. In other words, God is giving his people reason to believe that they can trust him. God is giving his people a testimony so that they could rely on what the Lord says. That God knows what happens to them and God knows what will happen to them. Friends, the first reason Isaiah is challenging us why we should trust in the Lord is because we can, tr we can trust him because he knows. And he knows not just your past, what you've been through. He knows not just your present, what you are going through now. He knows what you will go through tomorrow, next week next month, next year. The reason why we can trust the Lord is because he knows. I like how one of the commentators said, like Ahaz in chapter 7, the people as a whole are being given a last chance to abandon their faithless scheming and rely entirely on the Lord as their deliverer. In Isaiah, in verse 3, Isaiah's wife conceives and she gave birth to a son. And Isaiah gave his son this four-word name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Friends, I don't expect any parent these days uh, that they would dare to give their newborn such a name. Now just imagine calling your son, Speed, spoil, haste, booty, come here. Speed, spoil, haste, booty, would you share your toy with your sister? Speed, spoil, haste, booty. Would you be interested in playing soccer this summer? Would you come to Vacation Bible School at Parkers Baptist Church? Every time this child would be called, either by his parents or by his friends, this name, this name would ring a bell in people's ears. For the rest of, this, of his life, this boy would be a reminder that God had given his people evidence that they can trust him for he knows what will happen to them. 
This was not just a, ta- a name on a tablet. This was a name given to a boy. And every time that boy would be called, that name would be brought in people's ears. That's why Isaiah says in, 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 in verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord have given me, has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts. Would you, Israel, trust the Lord? He knows every time the name of this boy would be called out. It would be a reminder that God had revealed those things because God is a God who knows. A second reason, a second sub-point why we can trust the Lord is because the Lord is in control. Look at, verse, look at verses seven, uh, 5 through 7. Because the Lord is in control. In verses 5 through 7, the Lord speaks again to Isaiah about the destruction of the northern enemies that threatened Judah with their conspiracy. Uh, the Lord reveals that Assyria will come against the northern kingdom and against its ally. Now, here's the interesting thing. Remember, Assyria was the strategy that Ahaz used in chapter 7. Remember? Now in chapter 8, God says, Assyria is coming. But the real reason Assyria is coming against these two regions is not because Ahaz made the alliance with Assyria, although he did make an alliance, but that's not why Assyria is coming. Here's why Assyria is coming. Look at verse 7. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. In other words, the Lord reveals to Isaiah why he is bringing Assyria against Israel. The, the reason why the Lord is bringing Assyria against Israel, the northern tribes, is not because Ahaz called them. Here's the real reason. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord spoke to me again because this people, by the way, here it's referring to the, the northern tribes of Israel, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and, and the son of Remaliah. The people of Judah were not rejoicing over Rezin or the, or the son of Remaliah. They were fearing them. This tells us that now Isaiah is speaking about the, northern, the people of, a, of the northern tribes of Israel. They are rejoicing over their, their alliance with Syria. They are rejoicing over their own king. They have refused the waters of Shiloh. Well, that's a very strange explanation. What do you mean? Because they refused the waters of Shiloh, that's why you're bringing Assyria against them? Well, here's the bottom line. The waters of Shiloh, I'm sorry, the waters of Shiloh was the water supply that Jerusalem had. Even though Jerusalem was a beautiful city on a beautiful site, its source of water was outside the city. And this always made Jerusalem vulnerable to its enemies. That's why Ahaz, when Isaiah met him in chapter 7, Isaiah met him at the viaduct that was carrying the water from outside the city to the city. That was the weakest spot in Jerusalem forever. Yet God had chosen Jerusalem. Even with this soft spot, weakness, that their water supply was outside the city, God was going to defend the city. And the people always had to trust that the Lord would defend the city. 
I love how one commentator uh, brings this together. He says, To live in Jerusalem, therefore, required faith that the Lord would stand by his promises, that this was the city he had chosen and which he would defend. In other words, to receive the waters of Shiloh was an imagery for the life of faith, trusting that God would defend his people. But the northern tribes, they broke off from Judah. They broke off from Jerusalem two centuries ago, before. And they, they broke off not only from Judah, they broke off from the God of Judah. They chose, when they separated, when the northern kingdom split up from the southern kingdom, they established their own religious system, different than the one in Jerusalem. They rejected the kings of, in the line of, Ju- of, of David, the kings of Judah, and they established a new line of kingship in the northern tribe. In all this, they rejected God's ways. They wanted autonomy from Jerusalem. This is what it's meant by the picture, this people has refused the water of Shiloh. The people refers to their, this action, this picture, refers to their rejection of God and of what God had given to his people in Jerusalem and in Judah. Because they have rejected the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh, God is bringing upon them the great river. The great river is the king of Assyria. And Isaiah's message to Judah is, it is God who brings Assyria against the northern tribes and against Syria. It's not Ahaz. It's God. And the reason he's bringing Assyria against these two nations is because the northern people of God, the northern tribes, the people of God, have rejected the Lord. But in verse 7 and 8, we are told that this mighty river will come not only against the northern tribes and against Syria, it will also overflow into Judah. Look at verse 8. And it will seep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Judah now is not only watching the mistakes of her older sister, the northern tribes of Israel, who have been rebellious for the past two centuries, and now God is executing judgment against them. Judah is watching all this. But Judah is also caught in the same temptation to follow her older sister and continue to rebel against the Lord by not trusting in him and trust in their own powers, in their own human ways and strategies. Judah is doing the same mistake as the northern tribes have done. Judah now is trusting in Assyria to get them out of trouble against their northern neighbors. The bad news for Judah is that Assyria will come against them as well. Now imagine the devastation that a flood can cause. Imagine we've had recently here in Texas, just a year or two ago, the damage floods can cause. This is a picture used for the kind of invasion that that Assyria will cause even to Judah. Now, if there's any good news in this delivery, in this news, is this. The flood will only reach to the neck. In other words, it will not completely wipe out. It will not completely kill, exterminate Judah. It will do so to the northern kingdoms, but not to Judah. At least they will survive, but barely. Barely. Can you picture this water? Just 
standing on your heels, making sure you, you can at least keep the, the, the air channel so you can survive the flood. That's what it will feel for Judah. That land will be totally devastated. Why trust the Lord? Because the Lord is in control of all this. Because the Lord is the one who's bringing this about. The Lord knows. The Lord is in control. Further, third sub-reason why we can trust the Lord is because His purposes cannot be overcome. In verse 9 through 11, Isaiah gives us a little poem. Be broken, you people, and be shattered. Give ear all you far countries. Strap on your armor. Be shattered. Take counsel together. It will not come to anything. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? God is with us. The nations will try to resist this invasion, but they won't be able to because it is God who is in this experience. This invasion of Assyria is not merely human planning. It is the Lord's planning. So why trust the Lord? Three reasons we get in this first major point. Because the Lord knows. Because the Lord is in control. Because his purposes cannot be overcome. All this is declared by the Lord before it took place so that the people of Judah would consider changing their allegiance. Even now, in the last hour, would they now, would they now, would they change? Notice in verse 16, uh, uh, God tells Isaiah, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. In other words, Isaiah in his lifetime was gathering a group of people from within Judah who began trusting the Lord. They began believing the words of Isaiah. God was keeping a remnant by calling people to trust in the Lord. He was doing all this. Would they trust? A second point we see as, we, as, the, as the story unfolds is how to respond in trust. We've seen three reasons why to trust. Now let's look on and see how to respond in trust. In verse 11 and all the way through verse 22, we see two different responses contrasted. And, and seeing this contrast of responses will help us understand what is going on. Let's look at the way the people of Judah, the, the, the general people of Judah, responded to this message. We see their response in verses 19 and following. When they say to you, inquire the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? In other words, the people of the land continue to seek their direction not from God. They would rather go and talk to the dead. They would rather go and talk to magicians. They would rather go and, and find sources from which to take their direction about what was going to happen. They would rather do that than go and ask God. This, dear friends, is a an example of what not to do. And yet, we too so often fall in the same traps, don't we? When we don't like the, the word that the Lord has for us, we find other counselors, or we find other people we go to that will speak what seems acceptable to us. We would rather talk to, to other people. We would, rather, we would rather look at articles or other, look at sources um, that don't have the wisdom of God and would rather trust them than trust in what the Lord has to say about the situation we're in. How often we rebel against the Lord when we seek 
other source of wisdom and direction. We figure out ways of not considering what God has already declared. Actually, one of the red flags that shows that our hearts are departing from the Lord is when we no longer go to God's Word for direction and when we no longer take the direction of God's Word for our lives, but instead choose our own guides. When we no longer consider this book to be a guide for us, that's a red flag. Whether we do it intentionally or unintentionally, whether we do it with awareness or without being aware of what we're doing, when we are seeking counsel other than from the Lord and His Word, we are in danger of relying and trusting in someone other than the Lord. Notice what is the result of seeking direction from the sources other than God and His Word. Look at verse 21. Look what will happen to the people who will continue to look to other sources. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged. They will speak contemptuously against their king. Now, this is the king that they have loved and cherished. They rejoiced in. Now they will speak contemptuously against him. And they will speak also contemptuously against their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Here are some signs that confirm that we are on the wrong path. The path of self-autonomy is a path that sooner or later brings with it great distress. It will lead people to be enraged, enraged against the very people on whom they trusted, enraged even against God. Such people will continue to look to the earth. They will look to try to figure out their way on their own. That's a picture of they will continue to look to the earth. They will try to figure things out continuously on their own. And the result will be distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish. Well, this is how the people in Isaiah's time responded, and this is what would happen to them. How was Isaiah to respond differently? How is Isaiah to respond differently? Look at how the Lord calls Isaiah to respond. Look at verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Now, walking in the way of this people refers not to physical walking. Uh, it, this is a picture of one's way of life. In other words, don't live your life the way this people are living their lives. Friend, I wonder if you recognize that as Christians, God calls us to live differently than non-Christians. God calls us to live differently even than the Christians who claim to be Christians but are not. The path of trusting in God will lead us to live a different kind of life. Notice the second thing that God calls Isaiah, how to show this trust in him. Verse 12, do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, him you shall f- let him be your fear and let him be your dread. In other words, How to show trust in the Lord, or what does that look like? How to respond in trust? 
Change what you fear. Change what you fear. God is not saying to Isaiah, be fearless or have no fear. He's saying, change what you fear. Fear not what this people fear. Instead, fear the Lord. Fear me, the Lord. Honor the Lord by directing your fears towards him. Now, what does he mean to fear the Lord? Verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. To fear the Lord, dear friends, is to honor him as holy. Don't live your life treating God as hidden in a closet. Don't treat him as someone whose words you can ignore. Don't treat God as merely an emergency contact that you call upon only when you're in trouble. Honor him as holy. This is what is involved in trusting the Lord, fearing him more than fearing what people fear. Friends, what are some fears that the world has today that you're tempted to have? And the Lord would say, don't fear what they fear. What are some fears in your life right now that the Lord would like you to redirect? To stop fearing that and redirect that fear towards the Lord himself. Is it the fear that perhaps you don't know what you will live with next year? Your job? The health? We've seen opportunities around us where people are, are, are challenged with that. Is it the, the, the not knowing of the future? When we turn our attention to the Lord Dear friends, he can become our fear. We turn our attention to people. The fear of the people becomes our fear. I want to give you a, a recommendation of a book. If you'd like to grow in the fear of the Lord and, and replace your fear of men and, and change that with the fear of the Lord, a wonderful book. I, want, I highly recommend it. When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. We have that in the foyer on the bookstall. I encourage you to think about this because, because trusting in the Lord involves this active and deliberate decision, choice, to change what you fear, to redirect what you fear. And unless we do that, we may think we're trusting the Lord, but we're not. Now, why should we fear the Lord? Now, why should we fear the Lord? The way we treat the Lord determines the way we will experience the Lord. Notice what the Lord becomes to us when we fear him and honor him. Look at verse 14, and this is lovely. Verse 14, and he will become a sanctuary. When we fear the Lord, when we treat him with honor and honor him as holy, he will become a sanctuary. Now, in the Old Testament, the sanctuary was a place where people met with God. But here, Isaiah is not talking about a physical temple, a physical sanctuary. No, Isaiah is saying that when we fear God, we commune with God. We are engaging with God. This is not the kind of fear of God that keeps us separate or away from God. No, this is a fear that brings us close to the Lord. We become come close to the Lord. The come, Lord comes close to us. He, we, he is our sanctuary. But to those who don't fear the Lord, 
For those who don't care about the Lord, for those who, don't, who ignore the Lord and His Word, notice what the Lord becomes to them. Instead of a sanctuary, the Lord becomes a snare, a trap. Wow, that's interesting. Look at verse 14. And a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. The Lord will be this for some people. Friends, have you ever thought that to some people the Lord could become a stumbling block? I know we love the pictures of the Lord being a source of joy, a refuge, a source of meaning in life, a source of peace, and He is all those. No doubt, no question about it. But here we are told that to some people, not to all, but to some people, the Lord can become not a sanctuary, but a trap, a snare, a stumbling block on which they trip up and fall on it and are broken by it. You say, how, how does it work out? I don't have a category of God being a stumbling block on which people trip and by which they will be destroyed. Well, here's, here's one way to think about it. Imagine, imagine you're driving on a highway. And all of a sudden, you start seeing signs. Road closed. Road closed. You see the signs, but, but you don't stop. You just keep going. And all of a sudden, at one point, you see those cement blocks that are 90 degrees across the highway. They just block the highway. You can't, you can't keep going. You've got to stop and turn around. The State Department has put that because ahead there's a bridge, and the bridge has collapsed. And they know that just putting signs is not enough. They've got to put a roadblock to stop you from driving into that bridge that is already collapsed. So the highway department has put that to warn us not to, not to keep driving to our own destruction. And they're so serious about that warning that they're putting these cement blocks in the road so no driver can go through them. Now, if you're driving on that road, you see the cement blocks blocking the entire road, but you don't stop. You keep driving. What will happen to you? You crash. Thank you for the help there, brother. You crash. You get destroyed. The very mechanism that was aimed to save your life now becomes the source of your destruction if you don't pay attention and respond to those warnings. If you keep driving carelessly, thinking that you know better, thinking that you can, you can do this, thinking that you're up for an adventure in life, Friends, the cement blocks were meant to protect you from the coming danger. 
but you ignore them. You don't turn around. You get destroyed. Not by the bridge, but by the cement blocks. Friends, do you understand that God is the same way? If he's blocking your road, it is because he knows that the road ahead in your life leads to your destruction. So he shows up in your life as a rock, as a cement block in the middle of the road of your life, calling you to stop, to turn around, change direction. But if you ignore him, if you ignore his calling, God becomes a trap for you. God becomes a snare for you, the rock of offense and destruction for you. One way people ignore God today is by thinking that they're fine spiritually. They don't need to do anything to change their direction of life. They assume that they're okay with God. They don't need to worry about God. Friend, you can't ignore the Lord. If you think you can ignore Him, if you think you can manage Him, you do so only to your danger. And the Lord will become to you, instead of a sanctuary, a snare. In contrast to the people of the land, notice how Isaiah chose to respond to the Lord. We've seen how, Isaiah, how the Lord commanded Isaiah to respond. Now let's look and see how Isaiah chose to respond to the Lord. Look at verse 17. I will wait for the Lord. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Isaiah understands that the destruction that God has predicted is coming. Isaiah will be caught up in that calamity. He won't perish, but he'll be caught up in it. Isaiah won't escape the suffering that the entire land will go through. Friends, God does not promise Isaiah that he will somehow not be affected by the calamity, by the national disaster. But notice Isaiah's heart as he is getting ready for the season of God's chastisement. Notice Isaiah's heart. I will wait. I will wait for the Lord and hope in him. Friends, waiting and hoping are two signs, sides of the same coin. You can't say you're hoping in the Lord if you're not willing to wait for the Lord. There are some people who, who say, oh, I want to put my hope in Jesus. I want to put my hope in him. If you're not willing to wait for him, you're not really putting your hope in him. Putting your hope on the Lord is half of the coin of waiting for the Lord. But notice what Isaiah is waiting for. His wait is not focused on, oh, I will wait for the time of trouble to be over. No, 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 no. His wait is directed towards the Lord. What he yearns for is not simply the times of peace and prosperity. No. He is waiting for the Lord himself. Isaiah recognized that the time of calamity is coming because the Lord has turned his face away from Jacob. But even through the season of chastisement, Isaiah is not saying, well, if this is what God is going to do, I'm through with him. I don't want to worship this kind of a God. Oh, no. Through the season of chastisement, Isaiah is waiting and he's waiting for the Lord. 
Now, why is Isaiah waiting for the Lord? Actually, let me ask you, if some of you this morning are here are feel, and feel like you are in this time of waiting and hoping, what are you waiting for? Is it just for the trouble to be over? Or are you waiting for the Lord? Why is Isaiah waiting for the Lord? He knows, Isaiah knows that chastisement is not God's last word. So Isaiah Isaiah's not only waiting for the Lord, but he's putting his hope in the Lord. And we know that, the, that chastisement is not the Lord's last word because chapter 9, verse 1 through 7 is one of the most glorious parts of all of Isaiah. God tells Isaiah, the time is coming when the people who are dwelling in darkness will see a glorious light. The Lord has promised that he not only will bring the chastisement against his people, the Lord has promised that he will bring a time of restoration when he will fully restore his people. So the final reason to trust in the Lord, Isaiah gets here a final reason to trust in the Lord. Here it is, because the Lord will restore his people. Because the Lord will restore his people. That's why Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord. I will put my hope in him. Why? Because the Lord said he will restore his people. Oh, friends, notice, in, and I'm going to go very quickly in these verses, um, and I will come back to it next week, because there's so much here that can ju- cannot just be quickly gone through. The Lord, the God who brought contentment will bring glory. Look at verse 1. The God who brought contentment against the nation will bring glory upon the nation. In verse 2, the darkness will be replaced by a great light. In verse 3, distress will be replaced by great joy. In verse 4, the oppressive government will be replaced by a government of peace, justice, and righteousness. Verse 4 and verse 7. Now, how will God do this? How will God accomplish this restoration? In verses 4, 5, and 6, we see three fours. Four, four, four. For the, in verse 4, for the yoke of the burden and the staff and the rod of oppression will be broken. In verse 5, the military gear will be burnt up. But verse 6, and this is the big one. Here's how God will do all of this through the birth of a child. Remember Ahaz in chapter 7? God told Ahaz, trust me Ahaz, you can trust me. Ask for a sign. Ahaz says, no, I won't ask. And the Lord said, I'll give you a sign. And the sign was a baby. And we have seen an initial fulfillment of that baby in chapter 8, Isaiah's son. But that's not the end of it. There is a final fulfillment. There's a a bigger fulfillment coming in the latter times, in the later times, in chapter 9. And this baby, he's, he's a different kind of baby. Look at his names. Instead of those four weird names that Isaiah gave his son, look at the four names this baby will have. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But above all, what's even more crazy about this baby is that the government will be on his shoulders. And it's not the government of the United States. It's not the government of the ideal human kingdom. It's, it's a government of peace and justice and righteousness. 
It's a government whose peace will have no end. Oh, friends, the birth of this baby is not Isaiah's son. The birth of this baby points to Jesus. No wonder that when Jesus began his public ministry, this is how Matthew described the ministry of Jesus. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Oh, friends, Isaiah put his hope in the Lord, and he waited for the Lord because he saw a day coming when, G- when God would provide another baby, another child, a child to be born, a son to be given, so that through him the government, the reigning of God would be placed upon his shoulders, and he would bring that kingdom here on earth. That's why Jesus' preaching ministry started with the command, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Oh, dear friends, this is why we can trust in the Lord. Because he is committed to restore his people, to bring them from darkness to light and from distress to joy. God's means of making this reversal is not armies, is not angels, is a baby. But this baby declared in his life, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Oh, dear friends, this is why we too can trust in the Lord. Because what the Lord has told Isaiah in 700 BC, the Lord fulfilled in the first century in the birth of Jesus. And dear friends, the Lord will continue to bring this government to full manifestation when he shall come again. But until that day, Until that day, we are here to call people like Isaiah called his people to trust in the Lord, to rely on the Lord, to forsake their own self-autonomy, to forsake their own self-reliance and turn to the Lord, repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Friends, if you've never done that, I encourage you, I call on you today to do so. If you've done that in the past, but you've walked away from the Lord and you trusted in your own wisdom and in your own direction, I am calling you today, come back to the Lord. Trust in Him. The zeal of the Lord will do this restoration. It is not up to, it's not up to you and I to work this restoration by ourselves. It's the zeal of the Lord who will do this. Trust or fall. Will you trust in Him? Let's pray. Father, You have given Your people In Isaiah's time, such an opportunity, such a promise, such a challenge to forsake their own schemes of trusting and relying on themselves and on others, to forsake their own fears, the fears of of those who have rebelled against you, and instead to fear you, to trust in you, to honor you as holy, 
Oh, Lord, would you help us do that today? Would you help us do that not only as a one-time event, but as a way of life? Would you help us to walk in this way when we depart from this place? Pray this in the name of Jesus for his glory and honor.